Exodus as we continue the story of the Israelite people where we left off in Genesis. The book of Genesis is that book of beginnings, which is what the very name Genesis means. Exodus now follows along, and it's a book of redemption. It's all about the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, and it's a wonderful picture of what Jesus did for us and the redemption that he purchased for us on the cross. The very name Exodus means exit or departure or going out or way out. And Jesus has definitely provided for us a way out from that sinful life and from the fall of sin and the penalty for that sin. We're going to see many wonderful types and pictures in our study through Exodus. Many New Testament principles has that Old Testament picture to further teach that principle. And and much of New Testament doctrine cannot be fully understood without having that good understanding of the various events and the symbols that are are found in the Old Testament. And and no doubt that we'll be seeing in and through the book of Exodus. Now an example of some basic types in Exodus is, first of all, we see Egypt is a type of the world system. Egypt being a picture of the world, and it's a world that's against the things of God. Pharaoh becomes a type of Satan who's prideful, who's lying, seeking praise. Israel is a type of the church. Not that, the, not that Israel has replaced the church. No, don't put words in my mouth. The type of the church delivered from the power of the world and set on a pilgrim journey. The crossing of the Red Sea is a type of baptism. Moses now is a type of Christ, God's prophet and deliverer. The manna that we'll see next is pictures that Jesus being the bread of life in John 6. The rock that struck is a picture of the smitten Christ through whose death the Holy Spirit would be poured out. The tabernacle and the furnishings has many types associated. We'll spend some time talking about that later on in our, in our study through Exodus. And then, of course, the Passover that we see in Exodus is a great picture to us of the sacrifice of Christ by which we gain life through his shed blood. So, like I said, the name Exodus meaning departure, and this sets up then to see the major thing, the, the major theme that we're going to see as we go through the book of Exodus, and that is the Passover and the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt and out of bondage and slavery. In a sense, we can say the Exodus story is our story. Like Israel, We are saved from slavery and sin and saved to worship God and to be a witness of God. We're saved by the blood of the lamb, just as they had to put the blood of the lamb upon the doorpost to be spared in the Passover. We're saved to leave the former things behind and embark on a pilgrimage, trusting the Lord until we reach our promised land. It's a great story and account for us in Exodus. If you're looking for a way out from that which might have you in bondage, Exodus it's that book for you. Its very name reminds us that God wants to deliver us and lead us into victory in him. Amen? All right. So here's an outline that we're going to be looking at as we go through. But this is a short kind of brief outline. But chapters 1 and 19, we're going to look at God's power. Here we'll be seeing the persecution, the plagues, and the pilgrimage. Then secondly, we're going to look at God's precepts in chapters 20 to 24. And then we'll see God's presence. I love that. This book is uh, much to do about the presence of God meeting with his people. I'm so glad that God desires to draw his people in and meet with him and 
and just tabernacle among his people. So we'll see God's presence, chapters 25 to 40, as we see the design of that, how it's delayed, and then the dedication of the tabernacle that would be built there. So let's start there in verse 1 of chapter 1. And says, now, <clears throat> these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. For Joseph was in Egypt already, and Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So there's been about 300 years that have passed since the death of Joseph and to where we, we pick up the story now in Exodus. There's going to be some 400 years that would transpire from the time um, that the Israelites came into Egypt when Jacob moved his family to Egypt to the time of the Exodus. Some 400 years will transpire. Exodus, like I said, it's just a real continuation of the story in Genesis. Uh, Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. He wasn't writing, stopping out of Genesis, going, well, time for a, a new book. I'm going to start now the book of Exodus. There were no book names or divisions of chapters and such in the original writing. So Moses is just kind of continuing on this story and unfolding, but he's picking it up now at a future and an important time to discuss what's happening now in Exodus. So he shows us the limited amount of people that first traveled down to Egypt. The sons of Jacob and their families were 70 people. We talked about that um, in Genesis um, earlier when, you know, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen records the number as being 75. And people go, oh, there's see Bibles all over the place filled with discrepancies and stuff like that. Well, Stephen was using the Septuagint. The Septuagint recorded 75 as they were taking in a different account using or counting other people such as Joseph's grandsons that were already in Egypt. So just a different, uh, an account, different counting, not contradicting one another in any way. But notice how these people, the Israelites, were blessed in this land that they were foreigners in. They were prosperous, they were fruitful, and they grew to be a large nation there in Goshen. Goshen sat at the northeastern side of of egypt and it was a place that that pharaoh gave the israelites to dwell in there they just began to grow and blossom as a nation by the time of the exodus uh out of egypt there were 603,550 men 21 and over men that were kind of fit or 20 years and older fit for war this means tolling all the people at the time of the exodus there very likely could have been you know Two to three million Israelites leaving Egypt. This is a large amount of people that they have swelled to in their time in Egypt. It's just exactly what God said. Genesis 46, verse 3 to 4, he said to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. So God promised Jacob Go, I'm going to make of you a great nation. That is exactly what has happened. See, it wasn't very logical for Jacob to go in Egypt to begin with, was it? It didn't go well for some of the other patriarchs when they visited Egypt. Jacob, I'm sure, was thinking, oh, man, God, are you sure? 
Egypt doesn't seem to have a good track record for us Hebrew people, and yet God says, go, I'm going to bless you. Jacob goes, and now they have blessed or been blessed as a nation. In fact, this is the very reason for Jacob to take his family there. God knew that if they were to remain in the land of Canaan, most likely they would be enticed by their neighbors to follow after their practices and enter into idolatry. We know that's exactly what happened when they eventually moved into Canaan. That's the beginning of them as a nation. This would have been absolutely detrimental to their growth and their existence even as a nation if they'd moved to Canaan right away. So God brings them to Egypt where the Egyptians would want nothing to do with them, seeing them as a, a, a dirty you know, group of shepherds that the Egyptians would want nothing to do with. They were able to dwell in their own land of Goshen and multiply rapidly without any kind of influence from the Egyptians. God's plan in this was all along to put them in that protective womb of Egypt and allow them to grow. God had his people in Egypt to prepare his people for the land of promise and to protect his people from potential problems. That's the fruit of all this now that we're reading about here in Exodus. So Israel has had it good in the land of Egypt. Now if they keep having it go well for them, they're never going to want to leave, are they? And be like, hey, things are okay. We don't need to go anywhere. We're provided for. We're taken care of. But God doesn't want them to be in Egypt for the rest of their days. So God's got to shake them up a little bit now and get them ready and desiring to move. He's got to make things a little uncomfortable for Israel. So look at what we read here in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. Israel has gained much favor from the previous ruling kings, all you know, with Joseph going in the land and having favor. And so they've had a good track record in history with the various kings of, of Egypt, with the various pharaohs. The people had, remember what a great influence and blessing Joseph had been to the country. But now they find themselves in a period well after those days where Joseph and the things that he did were no longer remembered. It's believed that Joseph was ruling during a period called the Hyksos period. The Hyksos were shepherd kings. They were a Semitic people or Semitic people who were very open and kind to the Hebrew people. But now it's seen this line of kings were deposed and the former dynasty of Egyptian kings were on the throne again. And they didn't have that same favor toward the Israelite people. And at some point down the line, the testimony and account of Joseph was not talked about or discussed. It's amazing how quick people can forget about important events or happenings in their history. And what a shame it is for Christians when they slip into that point of just kind of complacency and neglecting to remember all that God has done in our lives. That's why, you know, we celebrate communion. Celebrate communion because Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Don't ever neglect or forget the work that I've done for you in showing grace and forgiveness that 
It's only through the work I've done for you by which you have life, an eternal life. How we need to remember, remember how Jesus said to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, how you've forgotten your first love. He says you need, to, you need to go back and repeat those things that you formerly did. How we need to continue to be in that place where we're thankful for what the Lord has done, thankful for what we have in Jesus, remembering his great sacrifice for us by which we have life and forgiveness of sin. May we never take for granted those things that we have in Jesus. But look at verse 12. It says, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. See, opposition or persecution does not need to have the effect in our lives that the enemy would desire, especially for the life of the believer. God gives us the, the ability to bear, and, to bear all that kind of opposition and to produce fruit through it. See, it's often through the pressure and trials that God is birthing something wonderful. Just think about that for a second. We don't have to let circumstances defeat us, just like we've been seeing Paul on Sunday mornings, sitting in prison, writing these letters, expressing joy in Jesus, expressing thanks for other people. Paul didn't let his circumstances drag him down. He saw that God could still be using him, and, and he could be fruitful in and through that. Don't let circumstances defeat you. Let them cause you to move ahead with excitement at what God is going to do in it. It's exciting to see God work against the flow. God loves to work against the flow. See, Joseph has already revealed this, to, this truth so wonderfully in, that, in, in all that he went through. Being sold by his brothers, left for dead, sold into slavery in Egypt, put in prison, falsely accused, left in prison. And yet God was at work all through that, going against the flow. In the same manner, the early church was persecuted and pressed, but they grew exponentially out of that. We don't like being or going through affliction in our lives, but God oftentimes will use that to bring about much growth in our walk with him. Genesis 50, verse 20. Thanks, I've got water here. I'm just not stopping. I'm not stopping to drink it. Thank you. I'm uh, yeah, I've, I've got one sitting in my mouth right now, so we're going to fight through this today, guys. So bear with me. <clears throat> so Genesis 50 verse 20 says, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Persecuting the church is like pouring gas on a fire. Although the Sandy Adams says, it causes the flame to burn brighter. Under persecution, true believers intensify their commitment, streamline their service, bulk up their faith. In times of ease, faith can get flabby. But under mounting persecution, the church becomes clean, lean, and serene. And we've certainly seen an element of that in the last couple of years here, haven't we? Praise the Lord for that. And so true that difficulty and suffering causes us to cling all the more to our Savior. If we never have any trouble along the journey, we would never have any reason to long for heaven. Like the Israelites, we need the house of bondage to help drive us to the promised land. 
That's exactly what God is stirring up right now in Exodus. Kind of like the, the eagle that kind of stirs up the nest and gets the little baby eagle to begin to learn how to fly. Sometimes he needs to stir up the nest to get us to move, to get us to progress. The Lord's doing that with Israel here in Exodus, as he often does in our lives. But persecution doesn't need to hurt us or harm us or discourage us. Something God will often do to bring about greater fruitfulness and greater blessing. So, verse 13, the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So, before things got better, things got worse, and they began to drive the Israelites very hard. Israelites were, were very useful in doing much of kind of building, even building some of those great pyramids that we see in Israel, it's believed, and, or in Egypt, and just an amazing work that's going on, but they were driven to hard labor. Then in verse 15, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shipra, and the name of the other Pua, and he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Now again, we see the attempt of Satan to try to prevent the Messiah from being born. There's been many attempts throughout history to exterminate the Jewish people, and ultimately the, the enemy's plan is to prevent the Messiah from coming into the world, knowing that promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of that woman of Eve would eventually crush his head. Satan knows that. He's like, i got to prevent this one from coming into the world. And all throughout history, there's been an attempt, a satanic plot, to try to prevent the Messiah from coming into the world, whether it was Haman in the book of Esther wanting to exterminate the Jews, whether it's Herod in the beginning of Matthew when Jesus was going to be born, or whether it's Hitler in history looking to take out the Jews. Satan wanted to do everything he could to prevent that seed that Messiah from crushing his head. So he's been at work to try to subvert God's plans. But here's the great thing. Satan can do nothing to subvert God's plans. God's the one that's in control. Satan might think he's getting the upper hand at times, but I think he's just deceiving himself to think he might actually be gaining ground. Satan can only gain the ground we allow him to. Don't give him an inch in your life. I'm sure Satan, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, thought, this is it. Victory at last. Well, that victory did not last. Because <laughs> three days later, Satan realized he's in for a much bigger fight than he could have ever imagined. It's a losing battle. Satan's on the losing side. He's looking to bring as many down with him as he possibly can. Now, notice here the progression of Pharaoh's attacks. He brought the people into slavery. And then secondly, sought to kill the Hebrew boys. Now, these are the same tactics as Satan in his attempt to destroy humanity. He looks to bring people into bondage and into slavery in sin. He promises you everything and delivers on nothing. He thinks that if you will fall into this area of sin and you become a slave to sin, he's got you right where he wants you. But the thing, too, secondly, he knows that that sin is going to eventually bring death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. 
So Satan seeks to tempt you and lure you into an area of sin that you think might bring promise or hope, but it brings you into slavery and eventually into death. And just like Israel, who needed a savior to free them from the shackles, so too we need a savior to deliver us from bondage and death. For Israel, Moses would be that figure for us. Jesus is our ultimate savior who brings us out of death and into abundant life in him. Now, speaking of these midwives, Shipra and Pua, were these Hebrew midwives, were the Egyptian midwives? The, the text is not clear on that. We're not for sure on that, but their names seem to be Hebrew. And, and were these the only two midwives over all of Israel? Because that's, that's a full-time job if these are only two midwives. Most likely these were kind of like head nurses, and they were over all the midwives that were functioning. But these were the two that were closest to the chain of command to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh was dealing with them directly. What we do know is these midwives seem to be very honorable women. Their very names. Shipra means beautiful one, and Pua means splendid one. And they truly did a splendidly beautiful act. Look at this in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively. They give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. I love this. This is so good. So these midwives are commanded or commended as some of the first champions of of pro-life now here in the Bible. They had a fear of God that was greater than their fear of man. See, a reverent reverent fear of God is a healthy way of dictating our actions and deciding what we should do or not do. Let that fear of God drive you in your actions and decisions because our highest calling is to obey God. See, when the law of the land is contrary to the commands of God, the believer's first responsibility and priority is to obey God. That's what we read in Acts chapter 5, verse 27 to 29, when the the disciples were were brought before the authorities and questioned for their disobedience. And they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Plain and simple. We've got a higher call to answer to God and obey him over the earthly governments. And these midwives are doing just that. Now, there's been a lot of debate over whether these midwives lied and whether it was right to do so or not. A lot of people go, well, they didn't tell the truth and God blessed them, so I guess it's okay at times when we don't tell the truth fully. We've all given ourselves excuses of when it's acceptable to bend the truth, and this is a great proof text for people, but let me share with you what Reichen writes in his commentary. He says, a less critical answer is offered by J.B. Lightfoot, the astute 19th century English Bible commentator who described the words of the Hebrew midwives as not a lie, but a glorious confession of their faith. Their lie, if it can even be considered a lie, was such a whopper 
that they can hardly be accused of trying to deceive anyone. Think about it. If what Shipra and Pua said was literally true, then why would the Hebrews even need midwives? This is one of the places where understanding the Bible requires a sense of humor. Speaking tongue-in-cheek, the midwives were making sport of Pharaoh by suggesting that the Hebrews were hardier than the Egyptians. What they said was more a joke than a lie. Thus, Pharaoh was mocked as well as deceived. So we don't know what the full truth was. It's very likely that these Hebrew women were just very well at, at giving birth. And these babies just, they knew how to just drop these babies out like nobody's business, you know. These birthing stones were these things devised by the Hebrews to kind of like sort of kneel, crouch down on that, kind of put them in a position to just let those babies drop. You know what I mean? So they were very healthy and hearty women in doing so. I'm going to leave it at that. Let's move on. All right. It's uncomfortable now. Nevertheless, these midwives, <laughs> what we do know, they're blessed for their actions. God bless them. They went from being midwives to being housewives. Literally, they, they got to be blessed by having a family now that they got to care for and live with. Their, their households began to expand, which was a blessing. So God's blessing them in that. So verse 22, Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born... You shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Interesting how Pharaoh, again, he moves from enslaving to wanting to murder, to kill. And he wanted to drown all the babies. It's interesting because it would be the same fate that the Egyptian army would face at the Red Sea. Galatians 6, 7, it's very true. You reap what you sow. And here's Pharaoh reaping murder. And we'll see a great loss of life at the very actions that he'll take. Well, we see now the, the uncomfortableness and the stirring up of the Israelite people where God is looking to eventually get them to a place where they see their need to leave Egypt. It's not to be their home. And what they need is a deliverer. So chapter 2 begins to introduce us to that deliverer. Chapter 2, verse 1 says... And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Now, <clears throat> Moses here, who's writing this, does not go into much detail regarding his family or even his own <clears throat> upbringing for that matter. <clears throat> I feel like drinking water makes it worse. That's weird. Okay. Moses here doesn't even mention who his parents are. His parents, we do know, are Amram and, and Jochbed or Jochbed. They're mentioned in Exodus chapter 6, verse 20. Now, Moses could be just skirting over all these things, revealing himself to be the, the humble man that he himself will later go on to record him 
being the most humble man, which wasn't a very humble act. But he's a man of humility, and he's not drawing much attention to himself here. Now, David Guzik says, fanciful Jewish legends say that Moses' birth was painless to his mother, that at his birth, his face was so beautiful that the room was filled with light equal to the sun and moon combined, that he walked and spoke when he was a day old, and they refused to nurse, eating solid food from birth. This is how people have just, you know, looked to elevate Moses. But nevertheless, we see that he was a, a beautiful child. And there's no doubt something that just compelled Amram and Yachbed, his parents, to go against the king's command to throw their baby into the river. It went beyond just a maternal love for their child. It was an act that was done out of faith. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. So there's something that compelled his parents to say, this child is special. This child is special. You need to spare him. And you need to do so in faith. Because think about that. For three months, they've got to stop this child from crying so that nobody perks up and goes, what's going on over there? Got to be very careful putting those pins in those diapers so they don't poke them or poke the person doing it and starts to, you know, yelp or something like that. So they got to be very careful these three months to keep this child secret. And by faith, they did this. Little did they know how, how right they would be in taking this action. And it's also a wonderful testament of how when we step out in faith, God can take you in the most dire circumstances and do such wonderful things through them as we're going to see here coming up. Interestingly, Yachbed followed the king's command by putting her son in the river, only she did so with special protection, very wisely. Yachbed followed a biblical example from another era where many lives were threatened and protected. Speaking, of course, of Noah and the ark that was built. Again, the ark was covered inside and out with pitch. There in, in Genesis, that word for pitch is um, kofer, which is later translated as atonement. Within the very story, the ark and the pitch that was there spoke of the atonement, the covering of God and bringing protection and the saving of lives. Now here the word is different for pitch. Nevertheless, we see an important model followed by this woman of faith. Look at verse 5 here, chapter 2. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew woman that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Verse 9. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew. And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. So Yachbed and now Miriam, at this time Moses' sister, took the initial steps of faith, but they left it all in the hands of the Lord. And yet here we see the amazing providence of the Lord. Because just by random 
coincidence. You're supposed to stop me there. There's no coincidence. We talked about this on Sunday. Coincidence is not a kosher word, people. There's no coincidence with the Lord. By divine providence, God brings Pharaoh's daughter to the river <coughs> at just the right time. At just the right time, the right person happens to come down to the right place in the river where Moses was. See, God has everything worked out so wonderfully, doesn't he? God is in full control here. Now, initially, Achbed was only hoping for her son's life to be spared and safe. Yet now she's reunited with her son. And she's able to care for him and get paid for it. How good is God here? Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. So here we see God just doing a wonderful work in protecting Moses and continuing to bless his parents now. Being reunited with him, being supported, provided for, in, in caring for him. Now, if the king at this time is Thutmose one, then his daughter would be Hatshepsut. She called his name Moses, which means drawn out, drawn out of the water. And it's so fitting because as Moses would be drawn out of the river, he will also be the means God will use to draw the nation of Israel out of Egypt and also draw them out from the Red Sea and bringing them into the promised land and a salvation ultimately. So just a, a fitting name there. Now verse 11 jumps ahead a number of years. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. <clears throat> and when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So at this point, Moses is 40 years old. <clears throat> For a further account of his life up to this point, you can look at Acts chapter 7, verse 20 to 23, to read a little bit of details there. But as much as Moses had grown up in Egyptian wealth and education, the Hebrew heritage instilled in his life, no doubt by that time that his mother was rearing him, that Hebrew heritage is just burning in his heart. Because it caused him to go and investigate the conditions of his Hebrew brethren. So Moses goes out and he comes upon a conflict between an Egyptian and a Hebrew. Perhaps Moses beginning to see that. Perhaps God does have some special plans for him. And so Moses now takes it upon himself to fix the situation. I'm the deliverer. Time to do some delivering, Right? And he kills this Egyptian. It says he looks one way, right? Just like anytime we're about to do something suspicious, right? You're kind of like, anybody watching? Okay. You're looking in this way, looking that way. And Moses takes action. And he kills this Egyptian. The problem was Moses should have been looking up. 
to see what God intended him to do. See, Moses goes, he buries this man in the sand. We often try to bury our mistakes in sin rather than confess them. But the Bible is clear. Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, be sure your sin will find you out. See, Moses failed to take direction from the most important direction, that is the vertical direction. He looked this way, looked that way, but he didn't look to God, didn't look up to say, God, what do you have for me here? Though Moses may have thought he had a special role in God's plans for the Hebrew people, he went out in the power of the flesh and in his own wisdom and ingenuity rather than being led of the Spirit. And if we're not taking time to look up and consider God's ways, we're not going to be walking in the Spirit and we're going to make a mess of our own ways. And Moses now begins to face the repercussions of his actions. He starts to be ridiculed and taunted. And so he flees. Moses came out flexing his muscles, but you'll have to learn it's not by his ingenuity or wisdom that God's work is going to be done. It's going to be through complete dependency on God alone. And so Moses has spent 40 years in the educational system of Egypt, and now he's going to spend another 40 years in the educational system of the desert, often where God brings people for them to really learn dependence on him and for them to really grow in faith. Moses is going to need to be broken of his pride and of his self-sufficiency before he can be used of God mightily. So he makes his way into Midian. And it says in verse 16, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Ruel, their father, who's also going to be known as Jethro, familiar name, Jethro, he said, how is it that you come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his, to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that he left the man call him that he may eat bread? So here's Jethro. He's a little surprised. His daughter's gone out and have come back so quickly. And he's questioning this now. Moses was there in helping those daughters. Moses trained in Egyptian military. He's ready to take on some guys that are being a little, you know, unkind. It wasn't, you know, ladies first at this well. It was like men show up and they're taking over. But Moses says, nah, -uh. these ladies were here first. Let them have the way. So Moses goes and he helps them. And when the daughters come back, father's surprised. And they tell the story and they're like, Jethro's like, this sounds like a great guy. Where is he? Why is he in behind? I'm trying to get you guys married off. You just found a perfect man, and now you leave him? Go get him. Could use a little extra help around here too, I'm sure Jethro is thinking. And notice verse 21 then. Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of the time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came out to God because of the bondage. Verse 24. So God heard their groaning. 
God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Notice what it says there. Verse 21, Moses was what? Moses was content. I find that pretty awesome. He's come from the palace of Egypt, and he's now in the rugged plains as a shepherd. A shepherd being a despised, degraded group of people in the eyes of an Egyptian. But Moses is learning humility and simplicity, and he's content in that. You know, we're only going to find joy and peace when we learn to be content in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Because our contentment doesn't come through our circumstances. It comes from the Lord. Are you content in Jesus? Paul could say, I've learned to be content whatever situation I'm in. I know what it's like to be full. I know what it's like to be hungry. But I've learned how to be content. That was a discipline Paul had to practice. And Moses now is learning how to be content. It's a wonderful way to live life when you're not looking for the next thing that you think is going to bring satisfaction or joy, but when you're living life simply content in Jesus Christ, loving life in and through him. When, the, when Jesus is your joy, then you can be content in all circumstances. And Moses kind of reiterates now that that secret of that joy or contentment in in the revelation of his son Gershom whom he names Gershom which means foreigner see Moses understood he was just a foreigner in a foreign land whether it was in Egypt whether it's now in Midian he's just a pilgrim passing through and there's a great blessing when we really understand and we've been identified as that often in the New Testament we're just pilgrims we're pilgrims passing through. This world is not our home. This is not what we're living for. We're not looking to find fulfillment or contentment in this world. We're awaiting that city that's not built by man's hands, but built by God. We're awaiting eternal life in him. We're just pilgrims passing through this world. It's temporal. It's not lasting forever. We're awaiting our future home. We're foreigners in a foreign land, and Moses names his son that. Gershom, you're a foreigner. We're foreigners. We're just passing through. Now, to end here, <clears throat> we see something interesting and, and just reiterated there. Verse 24, God heard their groaning. God remembered. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. Four times we see this kind of action of God towards his people. And it wasn't that God heard this because they were so faithful or good or because they deserved it. No, this is completely based on his covenant that he had made with them. Genesis chapter 12, starting with Abraham. This covenant that God had made with his people Israel. It's the same reason that the Lord deals with you and me in this favor. It's not because we've earned it, but because he promised he would. Hebrews chapter 8 Verse 7 and 12 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. 
because they did not continue my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none of his brothers saying, know the Lord for all shall know me for the least to them, to the greatest of them, for I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and the lawless deeds I'll remember no more. That's the new covenant the Lord promises us that he enacted and worked through his son, Jesus Christ. The Lord comes and he hears us, remembers us. He looks upon us and acknowledges us, not because we deserve it, but it's based upon his covenant, his promises to us. We can come before the Lord and call out to him knowing that it's by his grace now we come. And it's by that grace and love the Lord is faithful to respond to us. The Pharaoh who saw Moses' life died, but that government policy of oppressing the Hebrews didn't change. At this point, people of God turned with one accord to the Lord. So as they groaned, they cried out to God for help. And those four verbs stresses that divine response of God to them. And the divine concern was translated into concrete action when God called the prophet to be their deliverer. That delivers Moses, and the commissioning of Moses unfolds in the next chapter that we're not getting into tonight, don't worry. Chapter 3 in a couple weeks, when we begin to hear that calling now of Moses specifically as that man that God's going to use in delivering his people. This chapter reveals to us uh, just, again, this great work of Moses and, and the very interesting type of Christ that he is. We see with Moses and of Christ, they were both born in troubling times where the boys were to be killed, yet God preserved them. Both had to leave a glorious dwelling place and accept humility. They were both rejected by their own people the first time. They both went out and received a Gentile bride unto themselves, and they were accepted by their people upon their second coming as their deliverer, which we'll see in the unfolding chapters of Exodus. Just a wonderful thing to be able to open up a book in the Old Testament and just see the life of Jesus being exemplified and seen here in our study. So let's pray. Worship team, we've got another song to do, right? Awesome. Come on up. Well, Lord, we do thank you that we can get into this book of Exodus and how, God, it doesn't just reveal history to us. It reveals ultimately what you've done for us and what you continue to do in us and through us, Lord. And we're thankful that you are our great deliverer and savior. God, you've taken us out from slavery of sin and bondage. You set us free, allowed us to find that blessed life in you. And we're thankful. And we pray, Lord, that, God, these lessons we've seen in Exodus tonight, you just plant upon our heart and continue to cause your word just to bear fruit in our own lives here, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's all stand together. And just take some time and worship the Lord in closing here.